Welcome to episode 556 with my guest, Joe Eggerwall. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our skulls. Could be from the past, maybe your future tripping, maybe it's complicated, maybe it's simple. Maybe you want me to know about it, maybe you don't. I'm not a therapist. Uh... This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for uh, professional mental counseling. I think that's usually clearly obvious by 30 seconds into this. And I create some version of a shit show. Look at me, hard on myself, 45 seconds into the podcast. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Doug. And he writes, how do you forgive people? Is it supposed to be a long, continual process? Uh, Part of me wants to let go, but part of me cannot. And he feels ashamed that at his age, uh, he's in his 40s, that he can't forgive a couple that he is mad at. And they used to be close friends. Doug, that is such a great question. And I have a lot of strong opinions on the subject of forgiveness. And... I say, fuck the word should when it comes to forgiveness. To me, forgiveness is an organic process that's either you either feel it or you don't. And I believe that we cannot control how we feel about forgiveness. We may tell somebody, I forgive you, and then secretly go back to our house and you know, poke their voodoo doll with knitting needles. But for me, the, any forgiveness that I've ever been able to generate about people I was resentful at has come from me doing work on myself, especially looking at the times that I've been a shitty person to other people. That helps me have more compassion for other people. And the more I get clarity on where I end and other people begin, what I have control over and what I don't, and surrendering to the universe the things I don't have control over, the easier it is to let go of resentments and to feel a sense of forgiveness. But if it's not there, buddy, I think that's fine. Maybe you'll get there someday with that resentment. Maybe you won't. And I think you're a fucking awesome dude either way. Was that a little over the top that I, t- that I told him he's an awesome dude when all I know him from is reading his survey? He might be out stabbing people in the face right before he filled out the survey and right after it. Just ran in all sweaty, filled out the survey. Big bloody knife on the desk. Blood all over his keyboard. Wow, this is taking a gruesome turn. This is uh, from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Normal Schmormal. Sh- And she writes, disclaimer, I've listened to all your episodes, a lot of them twice. Do you ever feel a sense of popularity listening to your listeners' feedback? What I mean by that is, does your ego ever get in your way at this point in the success of your podcast? I only ask because I know through listening to your podcast how far you've come with so much. It's got to be difficult sometimes to keep yourself in check. Please don't take this the wrong way. I admire everything you do to help the mental illness community, myself included, just curious how the popularity affects you. 
that is, that, that question made me laugh because I don't think I've ever felt like, oh, I've, I've so got it going on. Look at me. I'm so popular. I, my brain is so focused on my failures, my unfinished to-do list. Um, that's where it goes. That is, that is the condo that it rents and, and lives in. Um, but, you know, I, I, that doesn't mean I'm not grateful for the listeners that I do have. But the mean part of my brain is always like, that's it. That's all we got. Mm, everybody's passing you by. You are going to be broke and toothless when you are 75, living in a ditch, and it's going to be humid. This is from the same survey filled out by I Fall in Love with Everyone. And he writes, I struggle to fill out these surveys because I feel like I don't deserve to. I only have, I only have bipolar disorder, severe depression, and anxiety. Man, you are so hard on yourself, buddy. I feel like I don't qualify for a survey because people have been through worse than me. It is not a contest. The main reason I'm filling this out is that I'm lonely. I have a deep hole inside of me that's never filled. I only get into relationships uh, I feel truly connected to. Uh, I think there's a typo there. Uh, but I'm very intense. I fall in love fast. I want to spend a lot of time with that person and I get attached very quickly. All of that ends up pushing people away because I'm too much. How do I cope with this terrible loneliness? You know, there are a variety of ways that we can begin to get help. My, my, my answer is try a bunch of things. Try therapy. Uh, try reading books. I think a, a great book to read would be Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody. Um, try support groups. There's a ton of places uh, that you can go online these days. You know, that's one of the silver linings of the pandemic is the Zoom support group meetings have, have absolutely exploded. And people who live in the boonies have been able to find community and help. And yeah, it's not as good as in person, but to me, it's definitely better than, than nothing. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Leah or Leah. I was about 23 years old and my family went on our yearly vacation to a little quiet beach town. For this summer, my sister, brother, mom, and nephew were staying in a small but really nice house less than a block from the beach. I invited my boyfriend at the time. He was kind of a grungy, artsy type, and at the time maybe I felt like he really spiced up my upper middle class grad school vibe. He came down and we all went to dinner, a BYOB restaurant. My family drinks a lot. But this kid was so skinny and such a lightweight, he got drunk very quickly and easily. After several beers, he looked into my eyes and said, Bitch, I hate you at the table. And my own mother, sitting directly next to him, laughed because she thought it was a well-timed joke. After somehow making it back to the house unscathed, his drunken anger soared. He started to scream at me and about me to my brother, who was trying to de-escalate whatever the fuck was going on. He kicked doors, punched windows, broke glass bottles all over the property. My brother did his best to talk him down and reason with him. 
he couldn't be talked to. Somehow this guy went from eating dinner with my family to ripping shutters off of our rental house. He broke windows, ripped the back door off the hinges, and made several holes throughout the back of the house. My brother told my sister and me to leave because he thought maybe if I was gone that the rage wouldn't be taken out on the house with my mom and nephew still inside. My sister and I rode our bikes to a local bar to kill some time. On our way back, we pretty quickly noticed the four police cars lining our block and the multiple police on the front lawn was a dead giveaway. This kid was sitting in the back of a cop car. On the way up to the house, I remember telling one of the cops that I felt bad and he put a hand on my shoulder and said, why would you ever feel bad about this? I didn't have an answer. I went inside and found my mom. She was sitting in her bed, silently reading. I should have known better than to even go in. I opened the door and could immediately tell she was upset. I asked what was wrong, like, hello, the police just left. And she very matter-of-factly, without looking at me, said, he just wanted to talk to you. Oh, my God. I think he did a fine job redecorating the beach house. Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by Zoopy. And they write, I love when my husband, a night owl, tucks me in, the early riser, into bed at night. We hug and kiss and tell each other I love you. Then he turns off the light and steps out. I wouldn't admit this to him, but this plays into my daddy issues perfectly. <laughs> oh, do I love that. Oh, do I love that. We are sponsored today, as always, by the online therapy provider, BetterHelp.com. That's better H E L P. Dot com. Uh, apparently, I have been giving out uh, some incorrect information as of late. Uh, instead of getting a free week of counseling, it's 10% off your first month of counseling. Uh, they have a ton of great therapists. They're licensed in all 50 states. Uh, if you are not 18 or over, they'll direct you to uh, teencounseling.com. And uh, you can get the ball rolling there. But uh, if you are 18 or up over, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Uh, make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. Then uh, just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they think is a good fit for you, uh, they will match you up with one. And like I said, you can get uh, 10% off your first month of uh, counseling. And I've used it for a couple of years. And... Uh, I'm a big fan. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Dutch. And uh, he writes, I was in bed last night living the thoughts that come with an avoidant personality disorder. I recently started university again, and it's leading me to spiral down hard. Thankfully, I'm aware of how my spirals work, and although I can't stop them yet, I can be aware enough to let them run their course without panicking. Being conscious of it, helps to remind myself to breathe, but the thoughts and spirals are still there. I'm worthless. I shouldn't even be alive. Why did I think I could do this, etc.? So I was in bed, thinking and mulling and failing to fall asleep through all of it. Then I remembered my therapist's incessant advice. Be kind to yourself. Show self-love and be kind. Immediately, my stress was alleviated somewhat. Then the other voice chimed in, yeah, practice self-love, you dumb motherfucker. 
I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. ...let humans do this to each other? Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Joe Agarwal, uh, who has done many things. Uh, (laughs) Works in tech, uh, started an app uh, to help people communicate uh, with each other uh, when they're going through struggles. We'll get to that later because I I want to... Uh, we were introduced by former guest Akshay uh, Nanavate. Um, and one of the things he said that you did in your work, you, you left a job in the corporate world and went to conflict zones to see if you could learn about the sources of terrorism. Um, yes. Talk kind of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we were very well settled, uh, my husband and I, and uh, his name is Ramakant, and uh, both he was at Goldman Sachs in London. I ran a company for the Pearson Group. We had a nanny, a kid. <laughs> you know, the, the whole suburban lifestyle was very nice, and it felt like I knew how this would end. It was like a script that you could read and you knew how the whole thing would go. So I I had this always had the sense of doing something more relevant. You open the newspaper and you read what's going on and you feel what I'm doing every day has nothing to do with what I'm reading in the newspaper. I'm not relevant. And that that was a key value for me. And around that time, I had been doing work uh, on a USAID-funded project in uh, the Arab world, and uh, it was about educating uh, women uh, entrepreneurs uh, on how to uh, run their businesses, and that uh, that had won some award. So on my board was uh, this man called Sir David Bell. He was the chairman of the Financial Times, and he and a bunch of... Uh, Others, Marty Atisari, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Mary Robinson, the ex-Prime Minister of Ireland, um, John Chambers from Cisco, um, and they and um, Sheikh Hamosa, the um, and then the ruler's wife of the Emir's wife in Qatar, uh, they had all got together and said, "Can we create something that comes from the Arab world in these conflict areas that helps young people find other paths?" to change the narrative mm-hmm. for young people in to this country. To address the hopelessness. The hopelessness, the the choice. They, they don't have a choice at the moment. There is, uh, there is conflict, so there are no jobs. So can we create jobs? Can we bring back the cycle of peace where there is actually just a cycle of violence? Uh, and um, so they'd raised $100 million, and um, about a year had gone by, and a lot of big announcements had been made, and a lot of... Uh, 
interest had been garnered, but um, action on the ground was still to come. And uh, when he saw what I was doing, he said, Joe, I think they need your help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, somewhere along the way, I went there and I gave them lots of ideas about what we could do. And they said, that's great, but you need to move here and do it. And Ramakant was... Um, Three months away from bonus time at Goldman Sachs, mm-hmm. he went to his uh, boss and he said, I have to go because my wife's joining this no-name NGO in the mm. <laughs> And he thought that he was negotiating for a better bonus. <laughs> <laughs> so, because uh, he didn't have a job, so Ramakan just said, okay, you know, this is you following your dreams and you're wow, not going to Wow, he sounds like it. a really supportive uh, husband. He's amazing. Uh, he... Yeah, he went there and uh, he started consulting with them. And then he set up their uh, microfinance practice. So both of us started working there for the next six years and going through. Um, it was great for his journey as well. I mean, it's it's so, fine. From- so, so there can be a positive story coming out of Goldman Sachs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. I finally heard one. <laughs> but I, I think the coming out of Goldman Sachs is quite important part of that That's story. That's right. <laughs> Yes, not a lot of heartwarming <laughs> stories inside of Goldman Sachs. Yes, yeah, I, I think uh, on the out, at least for him, on the outside, the job looked really nice. He had a great salary, but what he did for a living, it didn't. You know, he wasn't living the life that he wanted to. Didn't feel authentic. Yes, or even intellectually challenging. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looks like it's like such a well-paid job would be super intellectually challenging, but it wasn't all the time. And while this was a big problem mm-hmm. that people had, and any really big blue sky problem that nobody solved before is really challenging and fun. And I think I went there initially just like a problem solver, as he did. Um, you know, we just, okay, how do we solve this problem? And... Uh, knowing what hasn't worked in the past. And initially, the first round of trials, for me at least, was in Yemen. Um, And it was actually a disaster eventually, but I learned from it. So uh, the first thing that I did was we spent about $2 million. Um, Saudi was giving us 100,000 visas for construction workers. Who, Who was? Saudi Arabia. Oh, okay. And uh, we were getting these Yemeni uh, boys who had uh, never been, actually never had any certification, no training, to get to a level of construction skills training and certification that Saudi would be willing to accept them. So we're giving them skills, certification, and then taking them into a market where they could make money. And was this before Saudi Arabia started bombing them yes. relentlessly? Okay, because <laughs> like I was like before. two years before, okay, right? Cause... So for two years I did this. Okay. It was super successful. All the funders want to fund this. We are going to roll out in thirty countries. Arab Spring happens. Bombing starts. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and at that point, I was like, okay, you know, this is what it means to be in a conflict area, and. I'm I'm a tech person. So this was the first time in my life I th- thought, I'm doing development. They don't do tech. This is real stuff. I need to go on the ground. But there was nobody who could go on the ground at that time. In a conflict zone, when this kind of stuff happens, um, one of the people who was running our project, his arm got blown off. I mean, this is, <laughs> you know, this was real stuff, but nobody could actually enter the country for the next four years. So there was still demand, there was still need. All of the people who went to these courses were willing to run them. The local people were willing to run them. Even in conflict, countries keep running. You know, waitresses keep waitering. 
you mm. know, it work still happens. Yeah, life goes it, on. Life goes on. People go to school. You're just d- dodging snipers on your on your way to work. Once um, in a while, yeah. once in a while, but it's not every day. Mm. But what does happen is that all of the help that comes from external people stops, and then you're left on your own. Mm. And all of so all of our external help could not fly in. There were no flights going in. So at that point, I went back, and by then, people had started trusting that I knew what I was doing. And was, the, so, was this uh, the, the choice of the Yemeni government, or was this kind of the general feeling of uh, people outside of Yemen that it's not safe to go there? It wasn't. I mean, no commercial flights were flying in. Uh, we had to have kidnap insurance. Even before that, when we went into Yemen, we went with kidnap insurance, and uh we would actually be uh, one of the conditions of the insurance was you couldn't tell anybody that you had insurance. It was like Fight Club. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, rule one of kidnap insurance is yes. you don't tell anybody you have kidnap yes. insurance. <laughs> so, but yeah, it, it, but at that point, I, I used to say I'd fly into any country as long as commercial flights are flying. But at some point, the foundation would decide or, you know, the donors would decide that we're not doing anything here. So mm. you just had to stop. Yeah. And, um, but at that time, I decided that I'm going to go back to tech because this doesn't happen with technology. You know, you walk out of the country, the technology stays in the country. It keeps mm-hmm. running. So I partnered with um, the Oridu group, it's called. It's uh, uh, in the Arab world. It's one of the largest um, uh, technologies. It's like a... Uh, uh, a T-Mobile or AT&T. Mm-hmm. It's a group of telecom providers. Right. And, and at this point, what had been established, just education uh, courses to um, help lift the population out of poverty, to give them skills to become employed? What what so, was being provided? So the primary issue in any of these markets is what we call um, information asymmetry. I know what skills I have. Uh, The person who has the job doesn't. And there's no way for me to signal to the person who can give me a job that I have these skills. So any kind of certification, any kind of signaling, any kind of assessment can actually bridge that. I see. Uh, Because they don't have a resume at at that point. Because, I mean, a resume would but you've never Would actually sign- done construction work. I see. And um, the kind of big uh, big projects that happen in Saudi have insurance, and you need to be certified to at least a basic level to even be allowed on site. Otherwise, their insurance won't be valid. Gotcha. And so you have to be able to signal with some certifications that you can walk in. Gotcha. Um, and even when, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people wanting to come in, how do you differentiate between them? How do you say this person is okay? Uh, but also simple things, you you know, just teaching people English can um, can change two to three times how much they're likely to get a job or how much they're likely to earn once they get a job. So that kind of work, um, as I was uh, doing this, I realized that, you know, you I did two things. One, Arab Spring had happened and there just weren't any jobs. It you know, there was nobody giving any jobs. So, is, I is that because uh, regimes were being overthrown exactly. and it was just in flux? It was so much in flux, exactly. Yeah. So the corporates were just saying, "We're not hiring right now." Once it settles down, we'll come in and pillage. But for exactly. right now, for right now, yes. and that for right now went on for a very long time. Yeah. So I was like, "Okay, what do I do?" Uh, did two things. One, uh, 
said that there aren't any jobs at the big partner level which we could do, but the small jobs are still happening. So we started creating a basic, there's something called USSD where you do star one, two, one hash on a phone in the olden days. And uh, you don't need data and you don't need credit and you can actually interact with content. So I turned those into e-learning programs, uh, how to learn English, how to really? find a job, like, you know, how to speak English in an interview, <laughs> all really? of those. So it j just became a really simple way, making a mini resume, getting SMSs on jobs that meet your resume. Really simple, no data, no credit, really basic phones. So it, it reached, I think we launched it initially in Tunisia because Arab Spring had just started there. And uh, it we got a million users in a month. Wow. It just It just blew up. Then we took it to Palestine, we took it to Iraq. Um, and Iraq is where I finally realized that, um, you know, what I had feel felt really bad about, which is the Yemen project, sort of having to close down after two years of sweat, blood, money, $2 million going in. Uh, it was, uh, went into um, Iraq, and again, ISIS happened. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Everybody again left. We were in Arbil. We all left the country. There was a big USAID project, had to be shut down. The only thing that was left running was this tech platform where we were getting data about even the location of the people who were texting and what kind of jobs were being put up. And all of that was being mapped on the GIS to the extent that the Minister of Interior of Iraq said that uh, this was his best bet against ISIS because he was getting data when there was behind ISIS lines, which he was not getting from anywhere else. Wow. So you, what I did that see, feel like when you, when you felt, heard that? It felt really as if I had solved the problem, you know, where mm. how do you address things in conflict? And there are so many people for so many years telling me that this is not real development. You have to actually go there and physically meet people because there's a lot of resistance to technology. I think right. one thing I realized was there'll always be people resisting technology, but they don't have any better solutions than I do. So as long as I focus on solving the problem, that's okay. Right. You know, I don't have to listen to that. This, am I actually solving the problem? And when push comes to shove, the next conflict told me that I had solved the problem to some extent, not fully, but I'd sort of broken the cycle of, you know, development comes in, bad things happen, everybody goes out, right. it all ends. So <laughs> that if cycle. you can create something that will stay there even exactly. after everybody flees. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a great idea. And I, I imagine like any other deeply entrenched issue you just throw as many things at it as you can and yeah. and see what see what works there are so few issues i know where there's a single solution absolutely to it. Yeah. and the other thing we did was a counseling center so no jobs but we want young people to break the cycle so uh we started with a small psychometric assessment. So tell you what your strengths are, what you really like, what kind of job would be right for you, not what pays how much, but, you know, this is what you would enjoy doing. And we created a four-day training program rather than, you know, having to do four years of training and just took it to every college in the region mm -hmm. and said, give us one person, one computer, we'll put this in and we'll train you how to become a career counseling center. We started out in Qatar where... 
kids would drive up in the Maseratis. They're really rich. They've got their Ferraris. Um, what do you do with them? But they equally, as much as the children and uh, not children, but young people in Palestine, uh, equally, both of them had never had a conversation with anybody about who they were, whether they were really rich or really in a conflict zone. Everybody had told them what the market was like. Everybody had told them which jobs had prospects, what status they would get. Nobody had talked to them. But this is what kind of person you are. These are your strengths. This is who you are. Wow. And, and how would those be assessed by this, these questions that the person mm-hmm. would fill out? Mm-hmm. So these are simple psychometric tests, you know, like the big five. I'm an extrovert. I'm, right. I, I have great spatial intelligence. Mm-hmm. I enjoy being with people. You know, something so I get a sense of actually these industries might be better for me. But also, this is who I am. I'm this kind of a person. Uh, my values, what kind of life I value living. I, I like uh, spontaneity mm-hmm. or I like uh, safety. Like, what kind of a person am I? Yes. Did and, anybody take the test and then they were told you would be really good at being a terrorist? <laughs> no, I don't think that was even an option. I, I think uh, what we did was we told them, like, the tech industry is good for you because it has a lot of opportunities. So yes. only at an industry level, not at a job level. Because why would you tell somebody what job they can do? The jobs won't right. even exist. I mean, right. there'll be new jobs tomorrow, right? They just need to know who they are. Yeah. They'll stay themselves. It's funny. The uh, test that I took uh, in high school told me 98% entertainment. And, and it was right lo and behold, you. yeah, <laughs> to the dismay of the population, that's what I wound up doing. <laughs> and and it's uh, helping you live the life you want to live. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would have made that uh, that choice. Otherwise, I didn't go to it right away. I was pre-med for the first three years of college because wow. that was the safe choice. But then I had a, a, just a moment of clarity where I went, what if I died in, in 10 years? Would I feel like I had lived my life? And I thought, no, what I really want to do is something creative. And I uh, just kind of moved in, in that direction. Then years later, I remembered that test that I had taken and it kind of confirmed that I was you know, doing what, what felt right to me. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, who knows? It, would have turned out differently. Uh, I would have said, oh, that stupid counselor. Why did you give me that, <laughs> that test? Um, so let's go back to um, uh, you were in Iraq. It, yes. it, it, the, the minister said that this is really the best hope for yeah. addressing uh, these youths. Uh, yeah. Actually, at that time, I realized that, you know, I had these tens of millions of dollars in budget. I had all the influence I want. You know, I could walk up and say, I connect me to this prime minister or this president. I would sit with ministries, with the G8, figure things out. And all of that was just getting in the way. Because really what it took was maybe a couple of hundred thousand dollars and the freedom to directly reach people Mm -hmm. without the interference from a government who says, oh, we don't talk to those guys anymore. No, focus on that country, you know, close down that project. And uh, Ramakant and I were both feeling like, as you said, if I die tomorrow, uh, is this what I want to do? And we said, we figured something out, but we want to do something bigger with this. We want to do something that... We sitting somewhere, anywhere in the world are building and people all of the world are using something that we would use, something that our kids would use. Mm -hmm. Um, And we didn't know what that was. But 
we started saying and at that time ramakan's father uh, wasn't feeling very well he was living alone uh, so we moved back to india mm-hmm. to take care of him and uh, i think that way we're good as a couple because uh, you're we from can ba- have, bangalore we're not we moved there because uh, it's it was the right place to do a startup oh, and see. it has the kind of culture where nobody really cares whether you're rich or poor so we're going to go from being relatively well off to being not so well off mm-hmm. it's good to do it in a place where nobody cares either way. yes and where, <laughs> and where are the you weather's good where are you from originally in india um in delhi oh, okay I, I, I think my parents are from Delhi, but I've just traveled the world. I did first grade in three cities. So I'm, oh, my you know, God. Yeah. I'm a nomad. Okay. Um, but, so, sorry. Yeah. No, no. So uh, so you and your husband are thinking, how can we take an idea but go global with this yes. to help people? Exactly. And we came up with, the first idea we came up with was a bomb. Um, but... It led us here. So the first idea we came up with was uh, we felt that some of the brightest minds in the world are working on cool technology, and many of them are our friends who are at Google or Facebook and uh, invented AdSense, you know, that kind of people. And uh, we were like, they're working on things that turn into advertising. Can we take that same technology and turn it for good? Uh, So could you potentially Google how somebody was? And we'd mm-hmm. come back because a parent had, you know, gone from being very fit to being mm-hmm. depressed and said, could we have Googled how he was if he didn't tell us because he just keeps saying he's okay. And uh, so we started working with sensors on the phone and how the phone moves about to know how somebody is and uh, create a picture for their loved ones. And it was we thought a very powerful idea. A lot of people believed in us. They gave us some money. And the day I closed the funding round, by then we'd launched the product. And we realized everybody wanted to know how somebody else was. Nobody wanted other people to know how they were. Mm. <laughs> so it was one of those things where yeah. you would send it to 10 people, please download this app, and nobody would download I'll d- I'll, it. <laughs> I'll demand no supply. Yeah, yeah I'll <laughs> demand no supply. Exactly. You put it really well. So, um, and we just, you know, all this credibility from all these years, sort of corporate career done it, an NGO done it, and then startup launch bomb, 20-year-olds are cracking it. I went into founder depression. Every morning I would get up and I would say, I just want to shut this down. And we just closed the round and we had, it was an angel round. So these are people who knew us, yeah. people who believed in us. These were, these were the believers, right? And I just wanted to give them their money back. And I couldn't, I didn't have the confidence to lead anymore. Like I'd made everybody follow me all over the world. And, you know, yeah. I didn't, it's like, you guys are looking to me for answers. And I don't trust myself anymore. I don't, I can't come out of bed. You know how depression is. I, yeah. Having a bath is a big deal here. <laughs> What do I do? Right. And and for two months, I was Having a what is a big deal here? Just going and having a bath. You know, getting oh. a shower is a big deal. Yeah, how <laughs> so? How so? To, when you're depressed, it's... You know, oh, okay. I thought you meant just like logistically because you were in India. There was something no, with, with no. having a bath. I was like, well, this is no, news to me. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. Getting out of bed. Getting you know, out of just bed is huge. Hitting the snooze alarm is like, oh, do I have the energy to even reach over? Exactly. The only thing I had the energy to do was browse. Somehow that that doesn't feel, isn't it? Uh, does that happen to you that you can go onto the computer and browse, but getting yeah. out of bed is hard? Yeah, no, I, I I think finding something 
uh, soothing for me when I'm in that place is something that completely absorbs me and keeps my curiosity yes. going. So yes. browsing makes sense. Or, or uh, reading a book or yes, something or, that distracts you. Playing Civilization. Uh, yes. I don't know if you've ever played that game, but that no, is... I, I read an entire anthology of P.G. Woodhouse because nothing ever happens in P.G. Woodhouse. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a world where there's no responsibility. I yes. think I just read a whole anthology at that time. But yeah, I remember those days. But during that time, I learned uh, through e-learning, actually, a couple of sites. I also tried to talk to some online therapists. I couldn't actually make myself, even though I was very aware of mental health, couldn't make myself get up and go and actually book an appointment. Mm -hmm. You know, that was too much signaling to too many people around me. Um, and it just elevated the status of the issue. Mm -hmm. much higher. So I tried to chat to some people. I tried to um, take some. So I learned some cognitive restructuring skills of how to change the way a thought works. And that really helped. Uh, I, I talked to some people online where just the fact that I could say something helped. What they said seemed very redundant and mm -hmm. not really helpful. But just being able to vent seemed helpful. Yeah. And uh, somewhere there, I think, because I'm a learning technology person and a designer at heart, I was like, I can do this better. But of course, I had no energy and no confidence to actually do something about it. Two months later, when I, the best advice I got was from a friend who said, Joe, this is not a tactical problem. This is a strategic one. Don't solve this right now. Don't do anything for two months. Give yourself time. Yeah. And I think just taking that pressure off myself to say, I need to solve this issue tomorrow, you know, right. helped. And yeah, let's uh, recharge our personal battery exactly. before we uh, go spending our energy elsewhere. Exactly. And start not trying to force an outcome to say, I think that was the first form of acceptance that this is happening. This is okay, too. Mm -hmm. And being able to accept that you're depressed rather than keep trying to struggle against it is right. really powerful. Like this is a fail. These feelings are a failure that I need to write rather exactly. than saying, okay, I'm feeling this. You know, exactly. Um, is there anything I can do uh, or is it simply being nice to myself and writing it out? You know, who knows? And, and I had that faith that once this friend said it, uh, I just had this faith that, OK, you know, the answer will come and it won't come tomorrow. It might come any time in the next two months, but I will know what to do next hopefully and I will get my confidence again one day yes and hopefully it won't come early in the morning <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it, it sounds as if um, and it, we're going to talk about uh, the app wise up but it sounds as if this quote unquote failure you had with this startup laid the groundwork for the success of wise Yes, but it wasn't until like one more iteration. It didn't happen quite right. then. <laughs> so right. we had one more lesson to learn. Um, at that time, because we were doing all these sensors, I just thought, okay, we're going to use these sensors to detect depression. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to give it to consumers. We're going to give it to doctors. So doctors can put this in other medical apps and... Uh, they would know whether somebody is depressed with diabetes, depressed and cancer, you know, and what kind of sensors can uh, detect uh, depression? So what we found was that this is the really cool thing that we found. We found that, you know, the amount of randomness in our behavior, like 
every day we move around and our phone is always with us. So we're using these simple accelerometers and GPS in your phone. There's no, we're not like tapping calls or right. trying to see your typing speed or any of that. We're just seeing how many calls are you making um, and, so, and how your phone is moving about, okay. just that. Um, and with that data, we were able to see that this, it's not about depressed people moving less or more. It's about the amount of chaos or randomness. like Chaos in a good way or a bad a, way? A good way. That normal human behavior is very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Like you'll pick it up now, you'll put it down, you'd, you'd go, you'd not go. You know, over a two-week period, there's a lot of randomness in your behavior, which is normal, which is good. Mm -hmm. When you're depressed in your public time, there's very little randomness. You're very routine because right. you're putting on an act. You can't mimic the randomness of normal human behavior. Oh, wow. That that makes total sense because I think for a lot of us, when we're in that depressed shell, it's our lives are small. We want to take as few risks as possible because the only comfort is often in the familiar, even if it's um, kind of a shitty, stinky familiar of I'm not going to see anybody. I'm not going to go grocery shopping. Um, but I don't have to deal with any surprises. Exactly. So your chaos comes down. But when you're in your private space, you're waking up much more erratically. You're walking around more erratically. So at home at night, chaos is really high. And mm. In public times and outside home, chaos is really low compared to other people. So that kind of patterns. This is me interpreting machine learning. Machine learning doesn't have any sort of such logic. It just says, I've detected a pattern. This one's depressed. This one's not depressed. And, and, and how did you arrive at that knowledge about chaos and the link to depression? Was that just an observation that you then coded in or was there, was there research on this? How did you? There has been research on this from MIT um, saying but that. What did they know? <laughs> so they'd done university-based trials and I was wondering whether even in rural India this would work, you know, even mm -hmm. on basic smartphones this would work. Um, and they don't tell too much so we just put the sensor data that we could get and we said let's see whether machines will learn. Now the logic that I'm presenting to you is actually just um, what I have sort of put a layer of my human intuition on top of what the data was telling me. Mm -hmm. But um, the machine just classified. It doesn't have any logic. Yeah. So we know that, you know, that the degree of randomness was different between these two. So we're now saying that this is probably why. Uh, but the machine just said these in a hundred people group, they said these 27 people are depressed. So it caught 27 out of 30 people who were actually depressed that the doctor had done a separate evaluation on. And we said, wow, this is awesome. And this was in rural India. This was people who had, you know, not too much money, who all had diabetes. So we were trying to do comorbidity between these two. Um, and three months later, we go back to say, what happened? One person had taken therapy. The others had gone back to talk to the doctor and say, don't tell anybody. I know I'm depressed. Don't tell anybody. Write me a prescription. And we didn't want to be that company. I mean, right. that's not the problem we were trying to solve. 
know, you're not trying to solve for how do we sell more antidepressants in the right. world. Right. So I think that for me in the entire journey was the hardest decision because the tech is cool. You've just gone through a failed product. You've turned it around and uh, you're going to kill it still. Mm. <laughs> and uh, what we did find as a silver lining, which we had never anticipated, was that in order to put the app, put, get the sensor data, you have to give them an app to put on their phone. The app we had built was a chatbot, which was a simple bot that you could chat with. No AI, just asks you five questions. How are you feeling today? Uh, what about that is bothering you? You know, just five, six questions. And people had been diligently talking to the bot uh, because their doctor had asked them to. And they were feeling better. Hmm. And their depression scores, who had been using it, their depression scores had come down dramatically. They were letting their feelings out. Absolutely. And they, the fact that they were not willing to see a therapist that would have been paid for, that was not an issue. They're not willing to let their families know, but they were willing to talk to the bot every day. That was a huge eye-opener. You know, it's on the surface, it's kind of funny, but it really makes sense because you get the plus of sharing your feelings, but if if you're really stigmatized, you're just sharing it with a robot. Exactly. And all they're going to tell are other robots. They're not going <laughs> to tell any people. And it's anonymous. So right. nobody knows who you are when you're telling a robot. So yeah. it's it's really... You know, it's, that's when we sort of realized that, okay, it still was a side project um, because, you know, we had this technology and we're like, we're not turning this into a big technology. Maybe we'll find particular use cases, but let me play with this. And then all of the stuff I learned on CBT, we had anyway AI guys. So we said, can we do natural language processing? Can we actually create a piece of learning and skills? It's journaling, but journaling that actually understands what you're saying and gives you the techniques a therapist would can yeah. actually help you reframe a negative thought, can help you figure out when actually acceptance would be a good thing now or looking at another person's perspective would be great or, wow. you know, actually hear what you're saying and respond yeah. to your feelings. So we started building that not like a therapist would, but like a user would, like a survivor would mm. say, this is what I need. And I came from that perspective to say, I really want a place to vent. I want a place that would give me those techniques, but that just lets me talk. Safety. Safety. And, and validation. Absolutely. And, yeah. and of course, still burned from the previous thing. We didn't do any marketing. Mm -hmm. We didn't focus on too much of the user experience design, the visuals, like the Wiza. It's a penguin. It was a five minute decision, sort mm -hmm. of pick from a stock photo. You know, mm -hmm. that penguin looks nice. Let's put it. It's non gender specific. It's body positive. Go right. like 15 minutes. <laughs> you got a app icon. We just did it very quickly. And Suddenly, we start getting invite requests for the app. And uh, I think we had 30,000 downloads in a month. And That's amazing. In a mental health app where people are talking to a bot and the bot wasn't even that good. So we said, okay, let's do more. And we did more in that. And then we said, okay, let's also do this for diabetes. Let's also do this for something else. And then May 2017, a girl called Nora writes to us. She says, I'm 13. I'm depressed. I tried to commit suicide. You're helping me hold on to myself. Thank you. And 
we cried. Ramakant and I, I remember where we were when that mail came. We cried, we hugged each other, and we shut everything else down. And we just said, she can't, you know, she will need somebody to pay for therapy if she needs therapy. She will need to open up to somebody else. If she can, we have no idea why this works or how this works. She can access this. This will remain free forever. We'll figure out how to make money. And we sort of made her our mental model of who we're building this for. And we kept adding more and more of what people like her would want to see. Um, it's now the number one application for the National Health Service in the UK for the children and adults in mental health service in the 14 to 17-year age group. It's the only thing that works with them because they have 14-month wait list for therapists, even after you've attempted suicide. That's unconscionable. Just last month, a 55-year-old man, Ross, uh, wrote to us on Twitter and then actually he was the first person who picked up the phone and actually called me. I don't know how he found my number. It was crazy to have somebody say, thank you for creating this. I'm alive today because of it. You saved me because I couldn't see a therapist for 14 months. I've been on a wait list. And and people all over the world. So we've had 32 such mails today. And, you know, that number changes every couple of weeks. But uh, And in the last two years, that's been... It's not a crisis support. It is learning. And it's not therapy, but it's a a kind of a stopgap. It's skills. It's journaling. It's Mm -hmm. it's a friend. (laughs) I I don't know how to put it, but it's self-help. It's as simple as that. It's like a self-help book marries an interactive journal. (laughs) So... um, but it seems to be what people need when they're not, they don't have somebody they can talk to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now it's reached over a million people. We still haven't spent a single dollar in marketing uh, because we were still burnt from that first experience right. of <laughs> you know, spending dollars and nobody keeping it on. Mm-hmm. I think we have to get over that fear and start yeah. doing some growth hacks. But uh, so far it's been growing really rapidly. And, uh, the good thing about being in Bangalore is that we are very resilient as a team. Or we're, we're not like a Silicon Valley startup. Most mm-hmm. of us are all survivors ourselves, have a deep connection with mental health, um, very passionate about the cause, but also it doesn't cost too much for us to keep body and soul together. So mm-hmm. we can keep going on small raises for years and mm-hmm. solve the problem. And that, and we have access to great talent. Um, global talent, but uh, people, and it's become a tribe of the generous. Like we have uh, Dr. Becky Inkster, who's a neuroscientist from Cambridge. She's Canadian, but lives in the UK. She's, uh, she's an amazing woman. She, uh, she'll organize these digital strategies in mental health. She's been advising us. She did a study and published a paper in JMIR on us. We never spent a dime. She's never taken a dollar from us. Uh, and she's introduced us to other people like her. And you find such amazing people who work alongside you. It's, it's been amazing for me. You know, uh, Joseph Campbell had a, I'm going to butcher it, but he had a, a, a saying that when you set out to do something altruistic, the universe will meet you halfway. And I have found that to be true with yeah. starting this podcast you know somebody came out of nowhere and said i would love to build a website for you for free you know um yeah. people said you know would you need help with your social media yeah. can you do this and and that and 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 the other thing um i discovered when i 
people started filling the surveys out is they even though they were just filling out a survey not sure if somebody was ever even going to read it so often people would say tears are streaming down my face i've never typed these sentences out before and all of a sudden they would have a moment of clarity and almost as if they had stepped outside themselves and they were witnessing their life from a different more hopeful angle that's exactly what Wiser does, right? Now, yes. you know, if a survey can do that, then you feel compelled to get that to as many people as possible. Yes. Now, are, are people able to um, communicate with each other or is it right now just between the person and the bot? We've kept it as a very safe space. So it's anonymous yes. and just between them and the person. The thing with anonymous peer-to-peer platforms is that it's very hard to moderate. Yeah. That you know, somebody anonymously can say things to another person. They say things to the bot, which they would never say to a human being. Right. But um, when they say to another person, it changes the equation. Like we want yes. them to be with wiser in a place where it doesn't matter what you say. Yeah. But then the moment there's another human being on the other side, you have to put on a filter. Right. And I think we want to keep it this filterless place. Yeah. And there are lots of very good uh, communities out there. But... This is who we are. We're right now quite good at helping people reframe a negative thought or become go from being unaware of what's the issue to becoming more aware. Mm-hmm. We're now working towards going to actually, and this is what my whole journey is. You know, I go with one thought that how do I solve this problem in the universe somehow <laughs> brings people in my way. And now, as I was telling you, I've got, um, I want to help people retell their story rewrite their story on Wiser and find that narrative um, which shows them that they're actually strong and all of this uh, trauma that they're going through is actually something that um, shows them how strong they are, Mm -hmm. that they're survivors of this and they can actually help others. And there was a time when just coming back to the conflict uh, uh, stream, just I think it was about a month ago, um, India and Pakistan were fighting uh, in the air. There was lots of conflict. Yeah. Uh, you might Kashmir. have heard Kashmir. Yeah. There was uh, attacks happening both ways. During that time, uh, in Wiser, if Wiser doesn't understand what you need help for, it asks you to send a mail. And that mail comes to me. So that's when I can start talking as a person. Many people can't afford a human coach, which we offer. So then I start giving them sort of support directly because we don't want to lose anybody. Mm -hmm. And this 19-year-old girl from a village in Pakistan writes to me saying that she feels like she's schizophrenic. She's been chatting with a guy online, uh, but even he seems to want only one thing from her and Can't she has no what friends. That would be, yeah. And uh, as she talked, chatted more, she sort of sent mails back and forth. She sent me like five mails in an hour. I knew that she has mm-hmm. a lot to get out. And uh, her father had been sexually abusing her for years, checked her messages. She was really scared. Um, and... So I found her, of course, um, a help center, uh, so an NGO that works with women and children's abuse. But because I was working on this narrative change, uh, both for myself and others, uh, I then said to her that, um, you know, there are millions who go through what you've gone through, but you are the one person who found help. You Mm -hmm. found Wiser. You wrote for help. 
-hmm. You're seeking help. That's super hard to do. Super You're, hard, super brave. I, I yeah. know it. It. I couldn't have done that when I was depressed. And this is a 19-year-old who's done this. So I said, when you reach out to these guys, um, this NGO, don't just ask them for help. Tell them that I can help others. Mm. <laughs> you know, because so true. I'm, I'm one of those people who figured out how to ask for help. I can help others learn how to ask for help. Yes, asking for help is a skill. It's huge. And it's so scary to use in the in the beginning. I still hate asking for help. It still scares me, the fear of somebody judging me or rejecting me or looking at me with kind of uh, almost like pity or like I'm being inconvenienced. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. To be seen in that state, in fact, is... Uh, is the biggest hindrance, right? And that's why the bot works, because you don't feel like somebody's seeing you in that yes. state. Yeah. And for her to do that, I, and she turned around and she said, you're the first person who's ever talked to me like I'm a human being. And, and that, I think, is the power that it's not just change narratives for people who are strong. It is when you're at your weakest and you give them a narrative which tells them how strong they are, mm -hmm. uh, it actually makes them feel recognized as a human being. And that's the need we all have, especially when we are at our weakest. We're not broken, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so many people are fucking warriors and they don't even know it. Exactly. They don't even know it. Exactly. And it sounds like Gracie just ran into the door. <laughs> I'm not sure what she's doing out there. <laughs> Uh, we're experimenting with uh, whether or not Gracie should be in the uh, the recording room or not. So um, anyway, uh, Joe, it sounds like you are just doing some amazing, amazing work, helping a lot of people. And um, if people want to get in touch with you, I'll put some links uh, yes, on there, especially people who are storytellers. Um, yes. And is there uh, anything else that you'd like to, to share? It's called WISA, W-Y-S-A. That's right. Yeah. And where can they find out more about WISA? Just go online and look for WISA, okay. the app, uh, okay. not the soccer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but if you look for WISA app, you'll find lots of people talking about it. It's free on the App Store or the Play Store. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you. Mm, love talking to her. Let's dive into some surveys. Would that be wrong? Would that be inappropriate at this time? Am I jumping the gun? This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Jack Daniels, was the constant man in my life. And uh, she writes, what advice do you have for someone who is hesitant to attend support groups for alcohol addiction? I'm asking for myself and because my therapist wants me to attend meetings. Um, you know... There's a saying in recovery, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And uh, I was hesitant to get help. I There's a reason why we pay therapists and psychiatrists to help us and let them do their job. Try it. You know, I heard somebody say one time about alcoholism, untreated alcoholics are long on arrogance and short on responsibility. And that made me laugh because that, that, describes me, especially before I I started getting help. I didn't want to ask for help, but I'm glad I did because, fuck, it saved my life. It gave me a life that I, that I enjoy, or at least I have a chance of enjoying because, you know, sometimes my brain fucks with me. 
You know, when it, people ask me how I'm doing, a lot of times I say my life is great, my perception varies. But give it a shot. What do you got to lose? You know, there's also a saying, uh, give it a shot. If you don't like it, we'll gladly refund your misery. This is from the love survey filled out by hand on my dog's heart for guidance. And they write, I love playing frisbee with my friends and family in waist deep water on a summer's day. And that moment of jumping and stretching out and picking the frisbee out of midair just before I plunge into the cold lake water. Oh, that is so great. And I've done that before. It's such an amazing feeling. Lake Michigan. God, Lake Michigan can be so fucking cold in early summer. A lot of fond memories of uh, playing frisbee football on the beach. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Nito, and he writes, Hey, Paul, have any of your support groups gone to video meetings during the pandemic? How is that experience? I don't take well to online meetings generally when I've had to use them for business or classes. It just doesn't feel real and I can't focus or really engage. And without the physical cues of people paying attention to me, I find it even harder to speak up. All the meetings of the group I used to go to are online now, though, so I'm struggling for options. I'm not sure exactly how to find new groups that might suit me. I don't really know what to look for or where I'd belong. There is a website called in the rooms and i don't i always forget if it's .com or .org but um a huge selection of online meetings um but you know google stuff uh google support group and an issue that you're that you're struggling with just get out there and try stuff and yeah video meetings are not as good as in person i'm a hugger i love the the physical intimacy of an in-person meeting and it's certainly easier to pay attention um, but to me they are much much better than than nothing and one of the things that I do to help keep me connected is if there are commitments available at the meeting I take a commitment you know it could be I'm the guy that hosts the zoom meeting or maybe I'm the person that you know posts the links for literature that that people can buy related to the to the support group but um, I think for those of us that are addicts and alcoholics we will always have a voice in our brain that says just hang out by yourself man just do that escape into that compulsive thing you know whatever it is because it's better than drinking or using or you know whatever your main addiction is but I always feel better after I attend a support group meeting this is from the love survey filled out by Charlie and Charlie writes little purple flowers in the grass watching a bird build its nest watching my dog sleeping hearing my dogs barking in their sleep oh I love that one holding my dog's paw smelling my dog's paw finding the best place to scratch my dog chicken tiki masala oh I am on board with that. Samosas and papadums. Taking my dirty clothes off when I get home from work. Hearing my therapist's voice and seeing her smile. Driving a motorcycle. Jacuzzis. The way the air smells outside at my grandma's cabin. When my dad says, I love you. I love that if I'm ever cold inside my home or another building, all I have to do is walk outside to warm up. 
And finally, seeing sexy cleavage. That might be the first time we've gotten cleavage as a, as a love. I'm not a big cleavage guy. I don't know why that is. Does that mean I'm a failure as a man? I think it does. Let's all agree on that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself White Rabbit. She's uh, from Brazil, and she apologizes for uh, her her grammar. Um, She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, She writes that she's never been physically, uh, sexually, or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. Ending my mom and dad's life. I love my parents more than anything. I'm not sure that I won't try to kill myself when they die. I want to die before they do so that I will not have to be destroyed by their loss. I feel ashamed that I have thoughts about shooting or stabbing the people that I love the most in this world while they are sleeping. I love mom and dad. I should never think about this type of thing. It's so fucking bad to have this thought in my head. These thoughts are fleeting and not very frequent, but it is in my mind. What kind of person thinks about this horrible thing? A lot of people have thoughts that are repellent to them that just keep bouncing around in their head. And uh, the the name for it, and I'm not diagnosing you, but the name for it is pure O, they call it. It's a form of OCD. And um, there is help for it. There are uh, forms of therapy uh, for for dealing with pure O and other forms of of OCD. Uh, We've done a couple episodes with uh, Kimberly Quinlan, who is a therapist, and she's an expert in dealing with different forms of OCD and especially pure O. And uh, the important thing is that it goes against your moral compass. That is the important thing. If you were fantasizing about stabbing your mom and dad and you were making plans to do it and the thought of it excited you, that would be a totally different thing. But it is no, no reflection on who you are morally. Darkest secrets. I have tried to kill myself. Um... My dad has asked a few times if I needed to talk with somebody, but I always said no, that I was fine. That's bullshit. I am not fine. I don't want them to worry, so I just carry on. I have researched psychologists, but they are I have researched psychologists, but they are too expensive for me to pay at this moment. When things get better financially, I will probably try therapy. Sometimes I think I am too fucking dramatic about my life. You are not too dramatic about your life. When things get better financially, I will probably try therapy. Uh, oh, she's, she's <laughs> reread that. I should be able to deal with my feelings and problems just like everybody else. I am a stupid, lazy, useless piece of shit. God, you are so hard on yourself. So, so hard on yourself. Who, who wouldn't want out of that brain? And the answer is not to end the life of your brain. The answer is to get some different input into your brain, some self-love. I should be able to deal with my feelings. 
I still think about killing myself, but I decided that I can't do that to my parents. I have ambivalent feelings concerning death. I'm afraid to die, but I desire it. I want the nothing of death. Boy, is that a poetic sentence. I want the nothing of death. I think we've got a new t-shirt. I have been there. I have been there where I don't want to die, but I don't want to wake up. And it's a terrible, terrible place to be. And I think those are the moments that we really need to reach out for help, find a support network, whether it's friends or therapy or a support group. But don't try. Don't try to manage the very brain that is warping your perception of your life, at least without the aid of other perspectives. You know, love and human connection can do a tremendous, tremendous amount in helping us deal with whatever problem we're dealing with. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I get sexually aroused by watching or thinking about men or women being raped, rough sex, or if someone is uncomfortable during sexual intercourse. I get off watching porn and movies that shows horrible images of people being violated. I do not want to rape or cause harm to anybody. Sexual abuse is wrong. I can only imagine how much damage it causes to a person's soul. I shouldn't feel aroused by these disgusting images, but I do. You know, shouldn't has nothing to do with what turns us on. It just is or it isn't. And it's up to us to decide what we're going to do with those feelings of arousal. And there are healthy ways to explore fantasies that are similar to what you're talking about. As long as you're not hurting anybody, you know, embrace what it is that turns you on. Find a way to share it with a, a partner if you can. Uh, the more painful the experience appears to be, the greater the pleasure is that I feel. That is that is a pretty common thing. Uh, also, I find bruises extremely attractive. I like them on my body, and I have hurt myself on purpose, not cutting, blood is not my thing, in order to get them. A sexual partner with a few bruises is so fucking sexy. I love it. Important to mention that I never hurt anybody to give them bruises. Another deep secret is that I would like to be choked during sex. Nothing too extreme. I would like the guy to be on top, putting his weight on my body and his hand on my neck, squeezing tightly while he's penetrating me. I also would like to receive slaps on my face, soft but hard enough to make my face red and warm. It's very weird that I want this done to me. It is not weird. It is incredibly common and beautifully human. Beautifully human. You should not be ashamed. I think you should explore uh, sharing this with a partner. It, it can really... Maybe I'll just speak for myself. Being vulnerable, sharing what's going on in my head with my, my partner has helped me to love myself. It has helped me to realize I'm lovable. I'm not a bad person. I, you know, what, what turns me on turns me on. Um, yeah. 
I really want to be with someone that I can trust to tell all of the strange urges. I'm not sure that it would be okay for me to tell this these dark desires to people. Yes, it would be okay. It would be okay. I mean, obviously, it depends on the person. Um, maybe they will think I'm freaky, weird, never talk to me again. You know what? Maybe they might, but fuck them. There's a lot of people out there who would high-five you and maybe even say, hey, what are you doing at 3.30? What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to say to my parents and friends how I really feel inside. Make them see the amount of sadness, anger, confusion, and self-hate that I carry with me at all times. And you know, we can't make people see what it is that we feel. We can just put it out there and see how they handle it. And sometimes they don't handle it in a way that that we would like. But that's part of the universe we can't control. But what we can do is keep being vulnerable and we will find our family. We will find our people and it's an amazing feeling and it can change our life. And we can help change other people's lives. We can be there for them when they're in that place that we used to be. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that my parents would stop fighting and talk to each other with kindness, patience, love. I wish they could forgive the past and move on. I wish I could control or not have feelings. I wish to be a strong, calm, and interesting person. Uh, I can't unload my feelings on others. I don't want to make them feel bad. And that's that's a myth, is that getting vulnerable about our feelings is going to make other people feel bad or overwhelm them. There are a lot of people that are dying to know that somebody else thinks and feels like they do. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like I have purged a lot of shit out of my brains. Thank you for that. That uh, that was a beautiful survey. A really beautiful human survey. And I'm, I think you would be a great addition to a support group because you are clearly a sweet, sensitive soul. And the world needs more people like you. From the Ask Paul Anything survey, Sarah uh, writes, what were the first steps in overcoming intimacy issues for you? There's no support groups that I am aware of where I live in Australia. Um, you know, as, as far as intimacy issues, I think, as I mentioned a hundred times on this podcast, the book Facing Love Addiction by P.M. Melody, um, the website I mentioned, in the rooms.com uh, or .org, I always forget what it is. Um, and... She writes, I recognize I have major physical intimacy issues due to previous traumas in my solitary childhood, but I'm so far from getting the issues resolved, I don't know where to start. I can't even imagine wanting to be touched or to touch. Um, I don't know if they have this near you, but it helped me a ton with the trauma that was stored in my body is a thing called somatic experiencing. Another thing that helps with trauma uh, is EMDR. Um I, I think just try. Just try stuff. Just try stuff. I know it's scary, man. It It is. Those first few steps are so terrifying, but it's so worth it. From the Love Survey, Silicone Tiger writes, I love putting on my favorite song after making love and sharing 
about how fucking awesome this song is and the feelings and images it brings up. I've never tried that. I, I actually am also not a person that puts music on for sex. And I don't know why that is. Would a little Al Green hurt? There's like no Al Green song that can't be fucked to. If you've never heard the Al Green song, Love and Happiness, holy shit. Go listen to it now. Billy asks, how does one help another person if I myself am struggling? If your battery is drained, recharge your battery. Recharge your battery. There are times when we just got to be like, you know what? I'm overwhelmed right now. I can't return these phone calls. I got to take care of myself. And that is, you know, I don't know what other term for it. Self-care, self-parenting, healthy selfishness. Slow dancing with rattlesnakes uh, shares a love, sitting on the couch with my daughter, connecting and listening to what it is she is enjoying in her life, knowing that this love is so precious and so beautiful. I'm so grateful to be able to connect with her. My daughter is 12, almost as tall as me, and is still right into wrestling with me in the water when we go swimming. The absolute best. Man, that is fucking gold. Fucking gold. You want to know how to make the world a better place? Be present with your kids. And I think you probably feel better about yourself, too. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Hell Chick. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, uh, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And this one's kind of heavy. She writes, sadly, I've been raped so many times from young childhood until early teens. I no longer feel anything about this whatsoever. When I do think of this secret secret, I only think all you do is wait till it's over. No problem. Of course, I realize I could use therapy. Just not possible in my current situation. I wonder, am I the only woman who feels this way? So wishing I could feel outrage. Maybe I'm nuts. Maybe so. I think one of the ways that the, our brains and our bodies save us when, when we're trapped in traumatic situations is to go numb, is to not feel anything. She's been physically and emotionally abused. I was the scapegoat for my parents' anger, beatings almost daily, along with isolation and starvation when their anger needs were met. Being told how I had brought it on myself, I felt blank to suicide. Once my parents realized I could be used sexually to pay debts, wow, I felt lower than dirt to suicidal rage, but mostly blank. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes and no. Because of so much abuse, I can handle great pain and refuse to cry out. Others see me as strong. Maybe that's true. Darkest thoughts. All the sexual sick practices I learned. So ashamed. How do you tell someone at 10 years old you could be a hooker for men who are sadistic into bondage and get off on my crying and pain? 
I'm crap. Darkest secrets. Downed a bottle of pills after a date rape. Survived. No one knows. Can't do anything right. Man, you have been... You have been through so, so much. But... You are still standing, man. You are still fucking standing. You're so worth love and help and a path out of this darkness. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being turned on by S&M. I loathe this. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm a fraud because people think I am so strong. You know, being a strong person doesn't mean that being vulnerable takes away our strength. I think being vulnerable is being strong because you're doing something really brave by opening up, by showing that side of ourselves that that we desperately want to hide, that we're so ashamed of. But that can be the very thing that connects us more deeply to other people and makes our lives better. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want a man who will love me, someone I can be honest with, who would teach me what making love means. Have you shared these things with others? Never. How do you feel after writing them down? Crying, twisted up inside, relieved, like, okay, it's out. Sending you some love. Sending you some love. Fuck. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Sofa King, and he writes, I can't find the link to buy your cycling socks. Um, well, the link is www. Uh, so you want to buy Paul's cycling socks. Well, 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 you've come to the right place. Well, well, well. Dot net. Dot com was taken, believe it or not. We have a huge selection. We've got cycling socks that uh, barely cover your big toe. And uh, we've got socks that come up to your neck. And then finally, this is from the love survey filled out by Miss Ophonia. And uh, she writes, My roommate's cat spends most of the time in my room because it gets the most sunlight and is noticeably warmer than the rest of the house. When I'm walking down the hallway into my room, I can see Miss Ma'am, one of her many titles, laying on my bed like a statuesque, fuzzy little dragon. When she sees me, my lips turn up in a little smile as I blink at her, and she slowly blinks back with her striking green eyes. In that moment, I feel like Harry Potter when he bows to Buckbeak, the hippogriff, and has to wait and turn for Buckbeak to reciprocate the bow as a sign of acceptance. It's like the most regal, mannered sign of trust from a creature that, although small and domesticated, still retains a wild, alien mystique. My heart fills up with this tiny, weird expression of love. Man, that was like a little poem. Thank you for that. I, I must call my dog Gracie <laughs> an angel or a princess, or both, 50 times a day. That's no exaggeration. I'm glad she doesn't understand 
what I'm saying because I think, frankly, she would be creeped out or at least fucking bored by the repetitiveness of how I talk to her. Well, I hope you got something out of this episode. And to anybody out there who's struggling, oh, man, you are not alone. You are not alone. There, there is help out there. Our family is out there. Our people are out there. We just got to find them and connect to them because it's, it's the fucking best, man. It's the best. And uh, thanks for listening. You're not alone. Oh, I did that backwards. I'm a piece of shit. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.